Welcome to the Academy Podcast, a podcast dedicated to sharing rich content for the purpose of spiritual growth. I'm your host, Shalom Agdarab. The Academy creates transformative space for people to connect with God, self, others, and creation for the sake of the world. To learn more about the Academy, visit academy.upperroom.org. On this month's episode, we hear from Juan Huertas. Juan Carlos currently serves as Minister of Proclamation and the Practice of Justice at First Plymouth Congregational Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. Juan holds a Master of Divinity degree from Emory University in Atlanta, a Bachelor of Arts degree from Louisiana College in Pineville, Louisiana, where he majored in religion and minored in Spanish, which is his first language growing up in San Juan, Puerto Rico. He is a trained spiritual director and committed to practices that move communities to liberation through shared wisdom, communal leadership, and contextual action. Juan is married to Shannon Perry Huertas, and they have three children, Seth, Isabel, and Lucas. Dear ones, I descend from Filipinos. I come from a land, and my parents' parents worked the land and fished the waters off the coast of one of the many islands that make up the Philippines. But those same waters and land were trampled and crisscrossed by Spanish ships and Chinese trading vessels before them. We bear on our faces, our clothing, our land, the mark of other people and their religions. Filipinos have a saying, Ang taong hindi marunong dumingon sa kanyang pinanggalingan ay hindi makakarating sa kanyang paroroonan. The person who does not know how to look from where they came will not be able to get to where they're going. I believe this is true about healing from the wounds of Christendom as well. Listen on, dear one, and as you listen, breathe deeply and expand gently. Perhaps you will hear an invitation to look back in order to move forward in this new year. Healing the wounds of Christendom. And Elaine uh, introduced us to some of that reality today. But I love the, the, the subtitle, Reclaiming the Good News of the Gospel. Um, reclaiming the good news of the good news. Because that's what, the go- that's what gospel means. Uh, and so I love that because the reality of it is that for some of us, we are trying to say we have maybe misunderstood the good news. We've misunderstood gospel. And so we're trying to um, help us uh, reclaim that good news. And so I want to start uh, by a, a, a short text. Now, I promise. So I turned to preaching easy. So I promise not to preach at you. Uh, but uh, the gospel according to John in chapter eight has a great conversation between Jesus and his this, and the Pharisees. And they have all sorts of back and forth in typical Jehanine fashion. Uh, and then towards the middle of that long chapter, Jesus is clarifying something uh, to his own people. Now, remember that the Jehanine literature at times has these anti-Semitic strains. But we want to remember that Jesus is talking to his own kinfolk. He's talking to fellow Jews who are living in this time and place have different visions of what uh, their circumstances and who all are trying to be freed from their circumstance as colonized people themselves, right? So, so the gospels are rooted 
in the midst of a, we might say, a wounded religious life, a wounded place at a wounded time when they were subjects of the empire. Uh, so we want to remember that because then it is that same empire that then takes over Christianity just a little bit later. So, you know, we're talking about, about a similar strain of what it's like to dominate and take over. And what fascinates me is what Jesus says in verse 31. He says, uh, Jesus says to the Jews, again, to his own people in that place and time, who believed in him, you are truly my disciples. If you remain faithful to my teaching, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And as uh, Elaine told us uh, earlier, that truth that we want to be revealed is a reality. And it comes out of this discipleship, this following of Jesus, this doing what Jesus does. Because just a few verses before, Jesus says, you have seen me, you've seen the Father. You have seen me, you've seen the God that you proclaim, right? So as we enter into this conversation together today, I want you to remember that, that we are searching for truth. But this is no generic truth. Uh, this is a truth contextualized in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus the Christ, whom, whom then we proclaim as the one that we follow uh, in our lives together. And so that's that's kind of the context of our conversation today. So I'm going to try this. So Elena was a Christian, and I'm reclaiming the good news of the gospel, the good news of the good news. So so Elena, I did something weird today. I hope you forgive me. I, I, I am giving you the five marks that you gave us this morning as I hear them. As I hear them today. So uh, here are the five marks that Elaine gave us this morning. Creation healing. Jesus being. Practice belonging. Always practice belonging. Canonic living. This is that self-giving. And then wounded healing. These are the, 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 the practices and marks that um, Elaine gave us this morning. And I want to put these in a particular context in this particular time. And it's around the idea of colonization. Now, I want to uh, give you something that comes out of the work of Dr. Andrew Smith, who wrote about the three pillars of white supremacy. And that's in itself a whole conversation that we could be having today. But I, I, I've been um, kind of thinking about this in the context of colonization and decolonization, because if you follow the history of Christianity, one of the things you're gonna realize is that what happens is that this Jesus movement that sought to renew the ancient call of this Hebrew people who followed this God, Yahweh, who claimed to be the one and only true God, right? This, this Jesus who came uh, as the incarnation of God in the world, then this movement all of a sudden goes from this movement of healing and shalom and reconciliation and new life and becomes a, a key aspect of empire and empire building. Now we can go, go into history and figure out why that happened. And there's been a lot of ink spilled as to how that happened. For our purposes today, what we wanna say is that it happened and that it changed. And that that change has not been healthy or helpful, not just not healthy and helpful, for those early followers, but not healthy and helpful for what Jesus called us to be and do in the world. And I believe there's three key pillars of that colonizing impetus that go all the way back into history. And those key pillars are supremacy, 
and you've heard the term white supremacy, but I believe it's just supremacy. Now, it can be gender supremacy in the way that patriarchy, for example, works in the world. Uh, it could be, uh, and by the way, you, you hear that in the gospels all the time and in the Old Testament, this whole idea, for example, of God as father to the, to the exclusion of all other ideas of who God is, right? That, that's a supremacy of gender, right? Ethnic supremacy. Um, you see this very early on, not just in Christianity, but in the world about one ethnic group being above the other. Why was ancient Palestine under the thumbs of Rome? Because the Romans believed they were supreme. They were better than the people of the nations they colonized. And then racial supremacy, which the United States has its own kind, and it's been one of the most painful aspects of our history. And you're gonna, you're gonna hear a little bit more about that. The second pillar is displacement. Um, there's been a lot of writing about one of the things that colonizing does is displaces humans, displaces culture, and displaces resources. Humans, culture, and resources. And in our own history in the United States, um, we see that over and over again, from the uh, genocide of indigenous populations and settler colonialism to the enslavement of people in the continent of Africa and bringing them from that continent here to be enslaved and to be part of the economy uh, that built this nation. And then resources. Uh, you can go to Puerto Rico, or you can go to many of the other colonized nations. And part of that, what the colonizing impetus does, it takes over the resources takes them, sells them, makes money out of them, and it doesn't benefit the community in which those resources came. And then the next, uh, the next key is uh, commodification or capitalism. And I'm careful here because, um, and Elaine and I uh, uh, have had these conversations before in the sense that sometimes when you say in the United States capitalism, capitalism is one of those ideas in the United States imagination that seems to be almost like a God to us. We can critique it. We cannot speak against it. In some, in some uh, avenues, we cannot even question some basic principles of it. Uh, we cannot see some of the negative aspects of it. And so I like the idea of commodification because it kind of softens our conversation a bit. But for our conversation today, I, I wanna speak to that reality in our, in our uh, time together. And, this commodification is of all things, people, resources, creation. It's almost like we, um, we don't really seem to slow down enough to care enough. If it makes us money, we'll utilize it. And the Christian imagination calls us to a different way. And so we're going to be discussing these, these three ideas together in this short time. I wish I had more time, just like I wish I knew Elaine needed more time this morning. These are three texts that I believe are very central to our conversation about this. And I believe every follower of Jesus who's interested about these things should uh, engage these texts. Why Too Long by Robert Jones, The Christian Imagination by Willie James Jennings, and then on Selling Truths, one of the most powerful books uh, about the doctrine of discovery. Uh, Dr. Elaine Heath spoke to us about Manifest Destiny and this morning, which is part and parcel or an extension of the Doctrine of Discovery. And let me say something about that Doctrine of Discovery just for a minute. One of the interesting things 
is that once Christianity was taken over by the empire in the late 300s, and, you know, again, I know the myth of, you know, he con converted, you know, Constantine converted Christianity, blah, 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 all great and good. At the end of the day, whatever the reasons, uh, the reality was the empire took over this small yet powerful movement of Jesus. And this idea then, then this began to theologize the empire. The empire began to use language to theologize their reasonable being. So all of a sudden now Constantine was just not one among many other uh, imperial leaders. Now he was the imperial leader that God had called, that God wanted. And that movement, right, the chosen one of God, and that movement then began to instill a certain imagination. And Willie James Jennings tells us that really shifted all sorts of things in our life uh, together as human beings in the world. And that doctrinal discovery, which took place in the late 1400s, uh, it was a theologizing that took place about who God is, about who we are. So this doctrine, for example, stated that um, Europeans were uh, the race that God had chosen, right? So you see the racializing, and racializing is a, a construct, a social construct for the purposes of supremacy, right? They begin to racialize this idea so that what Europeans were chosen by God to be the civilizing agents in the world. They were the civilizing agents in the world. And so, so then they developed these pathways and they believed that God had then called them to be fruitful and to multiply the earth and to care for those who were not utilizing the earth in the ways that God intended. This is where, uh, for example, this whole idea of the Protestant work ethic that's so powerful in our imagination kind of is birthed out of, so God out of natural law desired that we subdue the earth and maximize it and commodify it. And so this doctrine of discovery begins to shape a particular way of thinking about the world. And, and they went, they went out of this impetus, which was deeply religious, a call from God to evangelize. So they take the term evangelization, which is a term that means good news sharing. And then that term becomes bad news for those who uh, were so-called found, right? I mean, the whole idea, if, you know, we, we look at it today and it should really baffle us how this uh, took place in our world. And so, so you have the beginning of the uh, enslavement of folk. Uh, when you see the Portuguese, uh, the Spanish, the English beginning to come, and the French beginning to come down into the west coast of Africa, uh, they sent explorers to find a land that didn't need to be found. It had already been found. <laughs> it had already uh, hosted civilizations and a life together. Uh, with its religions and its ways of life. Uh, and so they, they found them in honor of God. And then they began to then create its own rhythms in these places, rhythms that match what colonization is. They come in as the supreme power in God's name, and then they displace people and place, and then then they come 
and take over these places under the idea of evangelization. So my ancestors who were indigenous, for example, were forced to convert to Christianity by the sword. And those who did not convert were annihilated, right? Uh, my ancestors who were from West Africa were forcedly placed in the island of Puerto Rico to work the sugar cane and the tobacco and the, and the coffee. So that then that, that stuff could be sold and enrich the colonial powers in Spain. And many of you know what happened in the United States with its own brand of this movement uh, that you, uh, you're probably very familiar with. And so I could spend the whole time with bad news, but since this is healing, this is about healing the wounds, and I have some healing practices that I wanna spend the majority of my time around. And um, the first one is dignity affirmation. And this comes out of the work of Dr. Donna Hicks, uh, who wrote a great book called Dignity. And you're gonna see a slide with that book name in just a second. Um, they need the affirmation of all creation. And you heard Elaine speak to us this morning from her experience um, about how they are doing all sorts of practices of hospitality, of caring for the earth, that seeks to affirm the dignity of all things that human beings created by God, all human beings created by God and have a dignity in and of themselves. And that all creation as part of this biodiversity, as part of this ecology that uh, is so important to our life together, uh, it, it has dignity for what it is. And then, and then the other healing practice is indigenizing. And I, I have some points there that I'll discuss in just a second. And then the last one is uh, abolition, abolition. So, so dignity affirmation. Uh, Dr. Heath told us this morning, and if you notice, one of the things that caught my attention was that in the work, the work of the church at its core is the work of, of indeed of belonging. And so the gathering in and of itself is, is a work of belonging. The gathering to share stories, the gathering to remember that there's only one God and that we're not, we're not it. Um, the gathering to empower one another uh, in order to be loving in the world is the work, if you notice, of this dignity affirmation over and over again. And in fact, even here today, uh, in our rhythms that we've had together, you've heard this together. You, we've heard each other's stories. We've had moments of silence. We have a reminder of our identity at God's home. And this is why I think the gathering of God's people in a decolonized concept, it's so crucial and important still. Now, like Dr. Heath, I still believe that that gathering, I think in the future will be smaller than it's ever been. I think it will be more rooted in our neighborhoods. And I think it's a kind of work that really is gonna kind of go back to the early 300 years folks gathered together, ate together, practice hospitality together, and were able then together to begin to make a difference uh, in the communities that they serve and live and work and play. And if you go back to the early history of the, of the church, one of the reasons why the empire uh, used Christianity uh, as a tool early on was because of the goodwill 
that these followers of Jesus had had uh, had had in their empire. You know, the ways the ways of hospitality and love were so compelling that this religion that had been tried to be stamped out, this religion that um, was an enemy of the empire, because remember, early Christians refused to serve in the empire's army, which was one of the key markers of that religion, now becomes a, a powerful force for the empire. And it was out of that that those practices that those early communities uh, had had. And so dignity affirmation is this process that happens in smaller communities in our world. And notice that in this dignity affirmation, it's a dignity affirmation across difference. Um, one of the interesting things about early Christianity was that though uh, there were still deeply rooted caste systems in the first 300 years of the church, when folks would gather for worship, there was a flattening of these divisions. So the enslaved will worship next to the slave owner. Women worship alongside men. Children were welcome into the community, right? So, they, so, so you see there in this practice of the flattening of these distinctions that begins to exercise something, transform something. And although the gospel writers uh, later on and editors did a great job about stamping out, for example, women's roles uh, in the life of the church, you still see hints of it all over the gospels. <laughs> you see Mary, the mother of Jesus uh, and her work. You see Phoebe at her work, right? You, you see these little hints that there was more here. You see Mary, Mary Magdalene to be the first proclaimer of the resurrection. So even though there was a lot of work there to stamp out some of those influences, you still see little hints of it. And so the gathering of the community at its best, if it's to be about this work of healing, must go back to those practices. And it's rooted in the life of worship, it's rooted in the life of prayer together, and it's rooted in the remembering of who we are as God's own. And then indigenizing, um, and this is, um, I know here I'm in Nebraska, uh, there were a number of indigenous communities that made home here. Um, some made home more permanently along the Platte River um, and developed agriculture here, but others were nomadic communities that came to grace the plains where we are right now. And so indigenizing is not just a recognition of those that came before. And if you read a book, called Haunting Histories. I'm gonna show you that slide. Um, you're gonna see that um, Healing Haunted Histories by Elaine Enns and Chet Myers. One of the things that they say is that um, part of our task in indigenizing is indeed to know the history of the places we're in. Whether you're in an urban setting or a rural setting, no know those those histories. Now let's see if I can go back. Oops. Oh, okay. Well, let me see. Oh, there we go. Um, so indigenizing is 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 it's certainly knowing more about where you are. But but there's three practices that I believe help us indigenize and heal. The first one is where colonizing displaces we have a replacing. It's an interesting English word, isn't it? Replacing. Because when we hear replacing, what do we hear? Bring somebody else in, right? That's not what it means. It's to place again, <laughs> right? So replacing is to place again. 
So part of the healing practice, if we're gonna healing heal this wound, is to place again, to root again, to get to know our neighbors again, to 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 eat the food that we grow again, to 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 invite neighbors to care for for that food that we have grown and and that we are connecting with. Uh, it, it might mean in urban setting um, to to go to the closest grocery store possible to where you live and get to know the workers there. <laughs> uh, that replacement. Um, helps us reroute where we where we are and helps us grow in our appreciation of the many hands that it takes uh, in order for us to live life where we live. That's not in a way that uh, makes us ignore the larger issues in our nation or in our world, but it's that we all of a sudden are rooted and are able to better evaluate and discern the larger issues that are happening. Um, social media does a lot of work of displacement. Um, I often think that sometimes we get so worried about what's happening, for example, in Washington, DC, that we ignore the real transformation we can make where we are. And so re this replacement reroutes us and it gives me a different outlook in what is happening uh, in, in the world beyond the corner of A Street and 23rd, where I live. Remembering, um, we should know this word well, because uh, we say, Jesus tells us that every time we eat bread and drink the cup, we are to remember, to bring back into being, to, to bring back that which has been dismembered. And in Healing Haunted Histories, part of that remembering and part of that truth-telling it's rooted in us recognizing in the ways that we have wounded, are wounding the world that we are living in today. The painful stories must be practiced and rehearsed. Not so that we can get so obsessed and down on ourselves, no. But so that we can learn from those previous mistakes and not continue to make these in perpetuity together. So we must remember and rehearse over and over and over again. And then the next, the next practice of healing is uh, re reconciling. Um, so uh, Mark Charles and Sun Shen Ra tells us that um, we talk a lot about reconciliation in the church, but some of these communities have been so... Uh, forgotten, ignored. Uh, they have been made to no longer exist to the point that they are calling us not to reconcile. They say we must concile first. We haven't even consoled yet. And so they're calling us to really reconcile, to, to really evaluate the ways in which we have not been helpful in these communities and through these communities. And only through conciliation can we, uh, can we get there. And here I wanna share something, a, a model for that. And let's see if I can get to it. Ah, oh, there we go. So Desmond Tutu has been the most helpful guide for me in this work of conciliation. Uh, in his book, The Book of Forgiving, he gives us a forgiveness cycle um, that I think is helpful for us. And if you see it here, um, you see what happens there. So um, this work, 
colonization has caused harm. And not just to those of us who are colonized people, but to all of us, to all of us. It has caused harm. Even those who have benefited from colonization, even those who have benefited from Christendom have been harmed by it because he's taken away what this Christianity really is about. And that hurt or harm has caused pain. And Tutu tells us that we then need to choose. We can choose to continue the harm, the process of harm. And if you look at Latin America, for example, I'm a, a little bit of an armchair student of, of Latin American history. What's happened there over the years? The destabilization of colonization has caused constant cycles of harm and violence that seem to never end. You look at the Middle East and those cycles there. Look at Afghanistan and those cycles there. Look at Iraq and those cycles there. Look at it in our own nation in, in issues of, of race and race relations or misogyny, right? And you just can't seem to get out of the cycle. And so he's inviting us to a cycle uh, in which we choose healing. And there's an agency there. And shouldn't we, as people who claim Jesus Christ as our example and guide, be a people who choose healing? And so we choose healing. But that choosing healing is not cheap. As Bonhoeffer and others remind us, that takes uh, a certain sacrifice, that kenosis that Dr. Eve told us this morning. And so he gives us this pathway that uh, I think about often. He says, in order for us to find this kind of healing for we must first tell the story. And so we've been telling stories. healing comes at a price. It is not cheap. It costs us something, not in a transactional way, but in a way that requires investment. To withstand when it becomes uncomfortable, to stay vulnerable when our own defenses want to rise up, to remain compassionate when our own guilt and shame and anger simply want to lash out. As Juan talks about dignity affirmation, how do we choose belonging? How do we help others belong as spiritual people across difference? The way of following Jesus, the way of healing, has its roots in anti-empire, compassionate, hospitable community. How can your practice today align you more closely with these roots of the past? I want to highlight in particular the last few minutes of Juan sharing that part of our task in healing from white supremacy means getting to know the history of the places we are. It means getting to know our neighbors. It means not taking on the practices of indigenous siblings or appropriating their rituals, but approaching them with awe, approaching our neighbors with awe and humility. Perhaps that's one way of remembering and repairing our wounded world. Share this podcast with others and may it be a nudge, a guide, an honoring of intuitions you've long held 
and a means for justice in our lives and in the lives of all. To hear more from faculty and wisdom guides like Juan, join us at the next online or in-person Academy retreat. For more information, visit academy.upperroom.org.